0: Hello and welcome back to Talking Sense, the podcast. In the first episode, we discussed the aims and goals of this project, which is held in conjunction with the Ashmolean Museum, looking at the role of the senses in art in the permanent collection. In the second episode, Christy and I walked you through a workshop day, discussing the role of the senses in history, literature and culture. In the following few episodes, we will be presenting the podcast recordings of the Gallery Talks, the culmination of our year of research. In this episode, we'll be hearing from Raffaella Rohhofer, a DPhil candidate in English. Her talk partner was Jasmine Porto, a DPhil candidate in history. From the Alfred Jewel and Thomas Beckett's casket to an 18th century carriage clock and the travel guidebook, Rafaela and Jasmine explore the significance of the senses in reading and travelling to centres of culture and spiritual salvation. Now we'll be hearing from Rafaela Rohrhofer, who'll be talking about the Alfred Jewel and Thomas Beckett's casket. Welcome to this podcast. I am Rafaela Rohrhofer and I am a medievalist and a doctoral student at the University of Oxford, where I research the medieval contemplative tradition in England, the dialectical emotions of love and dread, and the ways in which they generate apophatic and cataphatic understanding. I am also a medieval art historian. This is the transcript of a gallery talk I gave at the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford. Over the next 15 minutes, I hope to give you fascinating insights into the sense of sight, the dissemination of wisdom and pilgrimage in the Middle Ages. We will start in the Yashmolians Medieval Gallery, where we will have a look at two of the most famous medieval artworks in Oxford, the Alfred Jewel and Thomas Beckett's Casket. You will even have a go at deciphering medieval manuscripts with me. When medieval authors wrote about the senses, they often considered the sense of sight to be the most important. And indeed, the sense of sight and its connection to understanding brings us to our first object, the Alfred jewel. This is one of the most magnificent pieces of jewelry from the Anglo-Saxon era. At this stage, I usually ask the visitors to have a close look at the Alfred jewel, but this works less well in a podcast and I suggest you look up an image online. Let us have a look at the inscription around the edge of the gold frame, Alfred Mechhecht gewerkan," in the Anglo-Saxon language of Old English, which means Alfred ordered me to be made. Alfred the Great became king of Wessex at the end of the ninth century. Could the person on the Alfred jewel be the king himself? There is no crown depicted, Neither do we see a throne. The man is holding two objects in his hands, but do they really look like crown insignia, we cannot be sure if the Alfred jewel was intended to depict Alfred. The Anglo-Saxons were Christians, so another theory suggested that the figure on the jewel is Jesus Christ or a saint, perhaps Saint Cuthbert. But there is no halo behind the figure's head. The identity of the man remains mysterious. The figure is now widely thought to represent the sense of sight, and the reason we think so is that there is a contemporary silver brooch in the British Museum that is engraved with figures representing the five senses. It shows the sense of sight as a man with prominent eyes holding two plant stems or flowers in an iconography similar to the Alfred jewel the allusion to the sense of sight is entirely appropriate for the purpose the alpha jewel had to fulfil, as we will see. Early theories suggested that the alpha jewel might have been the centrepiece of a royal headdress, but the setting would have been inappropriate for that purpose. According to another theory, it could have been a pendant worn around the neck, but this is equally unlikely because that would have meant that the figure on the jewel would have hung upside down. Today, we believe that the Alfred jewel was used as an estel or pointer to follow the text in a manuscript, much like a modern-day computer mouse. A wooden or an ivory rod would have been inserted into the dragon-like head at the base of the jewel, and you would have held the jewel, and the rod would have been used to point to the line and letters you were reading. Imagine it much like holding a lollipop, just the other way around. King Alfred believed in the significance of education and wisdom. He was taught to read Old English as a boy and learned Latin in his late thirties. One of the reasons why he received his by-name the Great as the only English monarch in history was that he commissioned and took himself part in the translation of several key texts that were written in Latin into the vernacular. When he had copies of the translated pastoral care of Pope Gregory the Great sent to bishops and monasteries throughout his lands, he sent a precious estel, a pointer for reading as we now know, with each copy. Reading, Writing and religion played important roles in Alfred's life. His love of learning began when he was attracted to the illustrated initial letters in a book of poetry as a young boy. Let us have a look at an 11th century copy of The Pastoral Care and try to translate it. Unfortunately, this exercise cannot be replicated in the podcast. To the listeners at home, I suggest you look for images of The Pastoral Care online and enjoy them in the comfort of your homes. We then have a look at another manuscript, this time from the beginning of the 15th century, written in Middle English and decorated with illustrations and illuminated initials. It is a work that most of you will be familiar with, written by one of the most famous medieval English authors, The Canterbury Tales by Geoffrey Chaucer. If you google images of the Ellesmere chaucer manuscript you can emulate the experience of the gallery talk and you will immediately see the pronounced difference in script because the manuscript dates much later. At this point in the gallery talk we deciphered and translated parts of this manuscript together. To give you, the podcast listeners, a feeling for the sound of Middle English, let me recite the first couple of lines from Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, which every reputable medievalist knows by heart. Juan that April with its sure sort, the draught of merch hath pursed to the roote, and bathed every vein in switchly cour, of which vertu is the floor. The Canterbury Tales were written at the end of the 14th century and revolve around a group of pilgrims on their way to Canterbury, to the Shrine of Thomas Becket, one of the most famous pilgrimage sites in Western Europe. For Chaucer, the pilgrimage provided a reason why these strangers from various places in society would come into contact with one another. And I now invite you to join me on an arduous pilgrimage to Thomas Beckett's casket, images of which our listeners can find online on the Ashmolean Museum's homepage. This reliquary casket of Thomas Beckett dates to around 1200 and commemorates his martyrdom, which occurred about 30 years before, on December 29, 1170. The casket is decorated with enamel, like the Alfred jewel, and made from gilt copper. It was produced in Limoges in, Fran- in France, the centre for a number work at that time. Over 45 medieval caskets of Beckett's death survive, they're scattered worldwide, and most of them were made in Limoges. What do we see? Three of the four knights are pictured, each with their weapons raised, just about to strike Thomas Beckett. Behind the Archbishop we see the altar and the hand of God appearing from above, reminding us us of the divine presence and the sacrilege of the murder within the cathedral. Pictured above is Becket's burial. His body is wrapped in cloth and is being placed in a tomb. On the sides of the casket we see Mary and Jesus. At the back of the casket there is a small door where a relic of the saint would have been inserted. Beckett's shrine at Canterbury Cathedral was one of the most famous in the Christian world until its destruction in 1538 on the orders of King Henry VIII. But why was Thomas Beckett killed? At first, Becket acted as King Henry II's chancellor, and when he became archbishop, everyone, King Henry included, expected him to be a yes-man for the king. But even though Becket used to love sumptuous ostentation, once he became the archbishop, the former pleasure-loving cleric, adopted a radical ascetic lifestyle. For instance, he wore an uncomfortable horsehair shirt underneath his vestments. Problems between Becket and King Henry had arisen before, but they came to a standstill when the king attempted to deal with criminal clergymen. About one in six people in England were clergymen, many of whom were not ordained to the priesthood. These lay clergy could be tried in ecclesiastical courts, which were more lenient than criminal courts. But as you can imagine, Henry wanted them to be tried in criminal courts, which were under his jurisdiction. Becket subsequently had to spend six years in French exile, Upon his return to England, he excommunicated the Archbishop of York and others who had performed the coronation service of Henry II's son, which Becket believed to be his right alone. Hearing of Becket's behaviour, the king exclaimed, "'Will no one rid me of this turbulent priest?' Four of the king's knights took that as an order and rode to Canterbury, where they killed Thomas Becket most brutally, staining the cathedral's floor with Becket's brain and blood. The brutal assassination of Becket horrified Christian Europe, and he was seen as a martyr. Soon stories of miracles that had taken place at his tomb started to appear. People demanded King Henry's excommunication and the scandal almost led to a war. Henry maintained he knew nothing of the mission and did penance by walking barefoot to Canterbury Cathedral, where he was flogged by local monks and kissed the altar where the priest had been killed. He also provided money for 200 knights to crusade in the Holy Land. The four knights were excommunicated by the Pope, who later ordered them to make amends by going on crusade for fourteen years, after which they would be allowed to return into the loving arms of the church. Within three years of his murder, Becket was proclaimed a saint. Pilgrims to the shrine wanted to see the sight of his murder and kiss the tomb, but they also went to spit at statues of the knights who killed him. The casket in the Ashmoorlin Museum would have served as a visual reminder of the shrine in Canterbury Cathedral. Pilgrimage to Canterbury became very fashionable. In the first year after Becket's death, around 100,000 people visited the shrine and brought with them donations of around 16 million pounds in today's money. A pilgrimage to Canterbury became a must-do, something much parodied in Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. As we have seen, pilgrimage in the Middle Ages is often associated with the extraordinary and with partaking in the intangible and ineffable. But how does pilgrimage and the practice of travelling develop in subsequent centuries? If you want to be as fashionable as Chaucer's pilgrims, I suggest you now listen to Jasmine Proto's podcast, which is also available on the Oxford Talking Sense podcast website. Thank you for the privilege of your time. I hope you enjoyed this window into the Middle Ages. My name is Raffaella Rohofer. Goodbye. Further reading about this podcast and all of the podcasts in this series, please see the attached bibliographies in the show notes. Music for the show was by David Hillowitz, Moment of Truth, Piano Version, provided by freemusicarchive.org. This podcast was presented, edited and produced by me, Christy Culloway-Gale. And me, Johnny Lawrence. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.